0: Welcome to Between the Vines. My name is Kevin Martin. I'm here with the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program team and also special guest, Dr. Terry Bates. If you joined us for our coffee pot series, you've probably already seen this content, but we wanted to share it with our podcast audience as a little bit of a special uh, because we do have some great information about nutrition and where that research is going and also best practices from research that has already taken place over the years. Dr. Bates is gonna share that with us, so we wanted to share it with you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bates, for joining us. And without further ado, I am gonna cut it over to the coffee pot.
1: Well, welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us for the Lake Erie Regional Great Program Coffee Pot Series. This morning, we have Dr. Terry Bates with us. He's here to for an informal discussion, to answer your questions. He has a couple slides he's gonna throw up to start generating some of that discussion. And I'd like to, I'm gonna read what you have online, Terry. I know everybody knows Dr. Terry Bates, but sometimes it's just nice to see or hear what is actually out there on the web about us. So the objective of his research program is to help the New York grape and juice industry reach their goal of producing maximum sustainable of high quality fruit through viticulture research and education. He works closely with producers and processors to identify research questions that are applicable to the industry. And those questions are then transformed into scientific research projects at the lab. So then we pass on the knowledge gained from those experience to extension specialists, processor representatives, and great producers in a variety of educational media, such as research publications, conferences, grower workshops, such as today, newsletters, and websites. And with that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Terry Bates. Thank you for Where'd joining. you get that up. description? It's on your our Cornell Cal's bio.
2: <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> let's let's get this thing, you know, spruced up a little bit. Um, does anybody have? A, So (laughs) I pulled out my nutrition talk from last year (laughs) uh, that just has some summary slides. And I mean, if those of you have heard me talk about nutrition before, of course, I'm going to talk about stuff like, you know, nitrogen availability and soil health, organic matter, active organic matter in your soil, and what you can do with that. Then the conversation always switches over to the relationship between soil pH, cation exchange capacity, and, you know, we get into this discussion about potassium and magnesium, which we can certainly do, (laughs) which is what I'm planning on doing, uh, because I think those are the biggest nutrition issues we have in our vineyards, Um, but I didn't know if anybody had questions they wanted to they had come up in an earlier meeting or I know Andy Musa always tasks me with some tough questions.
0: Um, One thing that came up last week and I, I figured we'd just get your sort of, I think we sort of had an answer, but, but I'd rather get your answer on it. Um, was nutrient availability, specifically nitrogen during uh, the bloom and set period, potentially lowering fruit set. In this it's sort of in the opposite way that like alar functioned
2: yeah so i talked to the finger lakes growers last night at, at hans's tailgate meeting and the that we not necessarily in relation to nutrition but there was a discussion on um varietal effects environmental effects and biological effects on fruit set and then we got into a discussion about the competition between the shoot tip growing and the fruit trying to set. Um, And those are competing sinks at at the bloom time of the year. So anything that you do to stimulate shoot growth, um, whether that be water or excessive fertilizer that stimulates that shoot growth will compete against, set, you can lower your set. In theory, you lower your set. Stuff like Alar, Ponax, we did some work once with Apogee, which was labeled for apples, but not grapes. And all of those kind of work in the same way in that you artificially slow down the shoot growth during the bloom period and that increases set. And so, yes, in theory, all that works. If you increase shoot growth, you decrease set. If you decrease shoot growth, you increase set. I think in our region, um uh, based on the amount of soil moisture we typically have during the bloom period like we don't really suffer from water stress at this time of the year so i think there's very little we can do to actually control shoot growth um versus like a california or an eastern washington where things are already starting to get dry and they say oh we want to speed up canopy growth we're going to give them a little extra water or if we want to slow down canopy growth we pull back um so <laughs> the long answer is, <laughs> is, yes, in theory, that works in the practicality of our climate. I don't think there's much we can, can do to control it. So I think if you bunch dump a bunch of nitrogen on now, I think the shoots are already growing as fast as they can, and you dump on some more nitrogen, and they still grow fast. Thanks. Very, uh, there uh, was a discussion about shoot tipping too, which I know none of us do. <laughs> and I don't think I would recommend it, but you could go through and you could shoot tip and that stunts shoot growth for a, a brief amount of time before the laterals start pushing. And then you can try to increase that. But. Ponax works. Do, I don't even think it's available anymore though. So Bob Poole did work with Ponex uh, several years, several, several years ago. <laughs> uh, and again, same thing, you're slowing down shoot growth, you're increasing set. The bottom line was if your crop is very, very low and you use Ponex, yes, you increase set, but it wasn't, a, you couldn't increase yield enough to pay for the Ponax. If your crop size was very, very high and you use Ponax, you would increase set but at that high yield already, all you did was cause the berries to be smaller. So there was a yield compensation thing. So you, you know, there was a diminishing return, but there is a nice sweet window in the middle. Say you had five tons per acre or six tons per acre and you wanted to jack that up to seven or eight tons per acre. That's where Ponax would work and it would pay for itself. Um, but I don't, I think it's still labeled on grapes. I just don't think it's a val. I don't think the company is. I yeah, I
0: think it's been replaced by other growth regulators and maybe, at least for a while, I don't know about any more, it, so it, it came off a patent and none of the, of the off-brands labeled it in grapes and the original company stopped producing it. So that's where they were at about probably 10 years ago now.
2: Yeah. My general philosophy is work on your soil health to improve vine size and then if you need extra crop, leave more buds. And then then you don't have to use chemicals to try to increase that.
3: Okay. Andy, did you want
1: to ask your question about the frost damage?
3: I've got a couple questions, Tara, but um, I don't know if you want to go through your talk first, go through your slides first, and then we get into that. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Same slides as last year. Um, but, <laughs> but I
2: forgot that I even gave the presentation. So hopefully, maybe some of you forgot that I gave it. Uh, let me see if I can share my screen. All right, you see that? Yes. See the full picture. Um, okay. All right. I took my last slide from last year and made it the first slide because this is kind of the bottom line. Um, you know to me the first thing, correct any water issues in your vineyard. You know water is your best fertilizer. Um, all the nutrition work that we've done we, it was we did years and years of like soil pH, potassium magnesium, phosphorus nutrition in Concord at the Old Fredonia Lab. And the best fertilizer we had was irrigation. <laughs> uh, so we could overcome a lot of our nutrient deficiencies as long as the vines had enough water and were able to take up the nutrient, the limiting nutrients that were there in the soil. Uh, we also know that excessive water uh, is it's very bad because it's if you have excessive water, you have poor nutrient cycling in the soil, plus the roots don't grow very well in waterlogged conditions. So then you can't take up those nutrients. So you know, kind of the first thing is, you know, make sure your soil isn't too dry and it isn't too wet. (laughs) Uh, And for the most part, if your soil is too dry, you can irrigate back. A lot of us don't irrigate. So you use floor management practices to to burn off the competition during the period of the year where the vines need the water the most. Um, There's, I think there's a lot of both stuff that's going on in the industry, like a lot of the work Bob Betts is doing with cover cropping, and Jen's been working on soil health issues. I think there's a lot of really good stuff there on increasing your soil health, your texture, your um, water holding capacity and water permeability into that soil. So it both absorbs the rainwater that comes and holds it for the grapevines to use is all part of a good management strategy to make sure your vines have enough water and then can take up the nutrients that they need because nutrient uptake is largely driven by transpiration. Uh, yeah, I'm going to get off track and let me not do that. <laughs> so I get it. Jen comes in my office and we talk and then I, we get off on these, on these wild physiological tangents. So
3: um,
2: just, Having good water management in the vineyard is very good. Okay, Then increasing active organic matter. Um, Again, this is a soil health issue. Uh, Tim Martinson did a survey of vineyards across New York, both Finger Lakes and Lake Erie, um, put them through the whole soil health testing profile thing. And it really showed that soil health the release of nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur from the decomposition of organic matter. So is related to the percent organic matter that you have in the soil, as long as you don't have any water issues, like waterlogged soil. Like you could have 6% organic matter, but if the soil is waterlogged, that's no good. Um, our general rule of thumb for the soils in our region is that you get 20 pounds of nitrogen for, for each percent organic matter. So if you have 3% organic matter in your soil, and it's it's healthy and active. You're getting 60, to 60, yeah sixty pounds of nitrogen a year out of that soil, and then you supplement that with fertilizer, um, and adjusting your soil pH between five five and six five. Uh, there's all this controversy or discussion there always has been over is Concord an acid loving plant and Bonifera um, it doesn't like acid. So uh, grapevines in general. I think we find if you're in the window of 5.5 five to 6.5, you're in good shape. Um, and there's, we can, out actually, we'll show you what I mean by that, because we've done a lot of work in that area. Um, so we probably also know or remember that we've done several studies where we've excavated vines out of the, out of the ground throughout the season. We started with a young vine study 20 something years ago, and we did a mature vine. So we took vines that were at least 30 years old, they were mature Concord Vineyard, dug those vines out of the ground uh, 10 times over the course of a full year um, and analyzed all the parts of the plants for their nutrients. So we could kind of come up with a nutrient budget for the, the vines. And I mean, there's no surprises here. The vines need a lot of nitrogen. Uh, So macronutrients, NPK, calcium, what we call micronutrients, magnesium, iron, boron, those, and we could tell you exactly at what time during the season, how much those vines need. And it always comes down to, are the vines getting enough nitrogen? And in our high cropping systems, are they getting enough potassium? And then you manage against those things. Uh, I always like to make the differentiation between an amendment and a fertilizer. So again, soil health is very important. We talk about soil amendments. So that is again, your water management, active organic matter and soil pH. And I always consider an amendment and a year-round thing, right? You're you're managing that soil to try to I mean, our job as farmers is to make the soil environment Uh, a benign environment for our grapevine roots. And that's an all year thing, right? You spend most of your time and most of your money (laughs) uh, trying to make that happen. And then fertilizers, which everyone spends all their time talking about is really just a supplemental thing around bloom because that's when the vines are, you know, that's where their demand is highest because they're actively growing a canopy and trying to set fruit. And we need to supplement you know, what we've done to amend our soil, then we supplement it with some fertilizers and, and make sure that everything is in balance at the time that the vines is needed. So amendment versus fertilizer. I'll skip that part on that. Hey
0: Terry, could you just yes. clarify, are you saying that 80% of the time and money should be spent on amendments or we spend nope. 80% of our time and money on amendments? No, we should. <laughs> oh, we should okay gotcha because i do not even know how we'd do that but but i get your point then so you're saying we should do
2: more which we certainly could do you yes <laughs> i think yes from a long-term management practice you know i'm going to worry more about how do i build my soil to have um higher organic matter if i'm lacking in organic matter to have higher organic matter. And then that organic matter is active in terms of uh, having all those soil health things, right? You want the soil to be covered. You want active roots growing in that soil. That's gonna, that is going to increase the amount of beneficial microorganisms in there that are turning over that organic matter and nutrient cycling, and then it all becomes available to the plant. So I'm gonna spend a lot of time thinking about uh, soil moisture, organic matter, uh, having biology growing in my soil to, to make that stuff happen. And I'm going to spend a little amount of time saying, do I need 20 pounds of nitrogen or 50 pounds of nitrogen at bloom to supplement that? Right. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, uh, okay. We've done a lot of work on nitrogen. Again, this stems from, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, years of controversy between Nelson Chalice and other nutritionists about how much nitrogen the vines need. Uh, And the, the, the story from the West here was that 50 pounds of nitrogen was better than zero, 100 pounds of nitrogen was not better than 50. Most people settle in on the between 50 and 80 pounds of actual nitrogen. And so we try to look at that and say, is that really the best? Or should our recommendations be based on something, you know, a little bit more specific, a little bit more biological. Uh, So we did some work with Leilang Chang, again, a while back, (laughs) I'm starting to feel really old. Uh, In terms of looking at, we use um, non-radioactive nitrogen tracers in fertilizer. So we could say, I'm gonna put on this much nitrogen, Fertilizer, how much of it is actually making it into the vines? Um, And so we come up with this recommendation. Again, you're getting 20, if you're getting 20 pounds of actual nitrogen per percent organic matter. So you start with, oh, okay, I have a soil that has 3% organic matter. I should be getting about 60 pounds of nitrogen from that. If the vines need in an annual cycle, if the vines need 50 pounds, Um, I need to make up or, um, in excess of 10 pounds. So I actually, if you have 3% organic matter, this is telling you, you might not even need any nitrogen, (laughs) the Bob Betts method of cutting back on your nitrogen. If I have 2% organic matter, it's giving me 40 pounds. I have to make up 10 pounds with fertilizer. Fertilizer at best is only 25% efficient. So, and that means if I put on hundred pounds of actual nitrogen, only 25 pounds is actually making it to the vines. The rest is going into that soil organic matrix or it's being leached out. Uh, Terry? Yes.
1: I'm sorry, I have a question for you because in some of my lit review that I was doing on this work for when it is actually taken up with the labeled nitrogen, like you and Leilang Chained it, one of the studies found that if you slowly fertigated with irrigation, they had 40% yep. efficiency uptake. So wouldn't you say?
2: So yeah, we don't do that.
1: I know, <laughs> I, you and I go round and round about this. <laughs> um,
2: yes, you, you could increase I think we could even increase the efficiency of nitrogen uptake if we you could fertilize with the with dry fertilizer or spray it if you did a liquid urea spray. You could fertilize six times during the season and kind of spoon feed it throughout the season, and you would get better um, uptake efficiency. So all of our studies are based on the typical one-shot application. Um, So I kind of have this down in green, if it were my call, right? If I was on a very sandy soil with, and I needed to make up a lot. And so my calculation is telling me I need 120 pounds of actual nitrogen. I'm going to do that in a split application because I want better efficiency. You could say two applications. You could take, you could say four, you could say six and it, because you're splitting that up, you're going to get better uptake efficiency. So again, a lot of ours is driven by transpiration so you have root pressure right so i this is the hot dog theory right you drop a hot dog in water and there's more salts and solutes inside of that membrane of the hot dog so water is driven into the hot dog and the hot dog swells up right roots kind of do the same thing you get root pressure and then root pressure can force water up the vine but that Root pressure actually only counts, I think it's like six feet. Like you can only drive water up six feet. So like what happens if you have a seven foot trellis or what if you have a 300 foot tree, right? How does water make it up? And so the main way that water gets driven up the plant is through the transpiration stream. So as water um, transpires out of the leaves, so those water molecules go out of the leaves, It it is the, you know, tension cohesion theory of water molecules as water molecules are going out it's pulling more up that's how water can make it to to the top of a 150 foot tree is that it's pulling that water up well as that water is coming up you're also pulling up nutrients so my practical point is when we have a full canopy of leaves that are transpiring the warmer it is the drier it is and the windier it is, the faster the transpiration stream is and the faster the nutrients get taken up as well. So a lot of our, not just nitrogen, but other nutrients are br- driven by that transpiration stream. So think about it, <clears throat> this time of year, our canopies are growing really fast, leaf area is developing, um, you know, by 30 days after bloom, we're gonna have a full canopy. It's gonna be hot, it's gonna be dry. The vines are take, using up a lot of water Um, as much as, what is it, a liter of water per hour in a full Concord canopy system. That's based on some work that was coming out of Washington state, which is hotter and drier than us. But still the point is, there's a lot of water going through that system and and nutrients are being, nutrient uptakes being driven by that water transport.
0: Thank you. Hey, Terry. Yes. I might have to speculate to understand the question. The, it was pretty simple, but I'm not sure what the real question was. Uh, how is, how does one measure organic matter?
2: Uh, just through a soil test. <laughs> uh, you, the traditional way of doing it is it, you cook it off. Like you weigh, you're weighing the soil and you put it in a furnace and you burn off the organic matter. And then you weigh it again, and then they tell you what the percent organic matter is. I don't know, Jen. You're Jen. You're the you're the new soil health uh, guru. Is there how do you know they measure it any way different in the soil health?
1: No, I'm not sure how they measure it. Actually, that's on my to do list: is to go visit the lab and watch all of this taking place. Yeah.
2: They measure active organic matter or active carbon a little bit different. It has to do with the respiration of the microorganisms. So they like take a core of soil and they can measure the respiration through gas exchange. And then they, they extrapolate that out to say, oh, you know, you have a very active soil with a lot of biological, um, respiration and turnover going on. Or you have a, you know, think of a sandy soil with no organic matter and it's dead. It's... (laughs) you're not going to get a lot of respiration and gas exchange.
0: Yeah. The only reason I can think of why that might've been asked is I I think there was some discussion about people perceiving that organic matter changed. The results changed um, when they switched labs. And obviously nobody does enough tests to know that for sure, or at least individual growers don't, but that was their perception. I don't know if that's was the case here, but yeah. Yeah. That That's happens with other nutrients. Could that happen with organic matter?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, and so every, and I'm not a, I'm a, whatever. <laughs> I, I watch other people's presentations who actually run these labs and, right. um, you know, they all say the same thing that every lab is a little, a little bit different. So, you know, you should find a lab that you're happy with. And, and if like, if you're going to, do your soil and your petiole nutrition over years, you kind of want to use the same lab. Um, they do go through rigorous testing where they send blind samples to like a central lab, different comp- you know, different labs, like a Penn State lab or an ANL lab. They'll all send samples to, a, to a, like a standard testing place to see that they're all w- within some specs. OK, so there is some of that going on. And, and I know every time I listen to one of these talks, they're like, we need to have more of that and we need to have a national standard. And and so, I mean, that's in the conversation. That's out of my wheelhouse.
3: <laughs> All right. I just wanted to mention that um, it, it, Penn State, if, if you want a soil test, you have to ask for the organic matter as, a, as an extra. They don't just give it to you. And, and I don't think you have to do that with um, Cornell. So just to mention that. Oh, after, yeah. Okay.
1: I didn't
3: know that either,
2: Andy. Yes. And I'm just, I'm thinking about, I've been to all the different websites for the different labs. And yes, they're all a little bit different in what they offer and their pricing and what what is actually included in the test. And then they may have 10 options of different tests that you can do. I usually pick the standard one. Um, Okay. Calcium, magnesium, potassium management. Again, this has a lot to do with Soil pH, which, you know, everyone, everyone knows I'm a big um, fan of adjusting your soil pH to get it in the right window. Um, cations and an- anions. So when you put um, murate of potash on the soil that's potassium chloride, it separates into, you know, as soon as, it's just like a salt, as soon as it goes into the soil water profile, you have potassium and you have chloride. Potassium is a cation, cat, cat ion. So it's positively charged. Chloride is a negatively charged anion. So, you know, think of a battery in the, the red pole versus the black pole. Um, but so when a salt dissolves, so now you have cations as an, cations and anions in the soil. Soils of different properties have different cation exchange capacity, and they also have an anion exchange capacity, which we don't normally talk of. Um, and all that means is soil particles, based on the amount of clay that's in your soil and the type of clay that's in your soil will have, it has a net negative charge and that attracts the positively charged ions. So potassium, magnesium, and calcium. Also sodium and hydrogen and aluminum and. Anything else that is a positively charged uh, ion in the soil will hang on to the cation exchange capacity. Um, and then those things will, some things hold onto the soil stronger than others. That's the strength of cation absor- absorption. Um, we always get into this argument over base saturation. All base saturation means is it's the good ions that you want for nutrient uptake. So potassium, magnesium, and calcium, and sodium are your base cations that are used in plant uptake. And so we talk about base saturation in your cation exchange capacity. Uh, soil pH is just a concentration of hydrogen ions in the soil. And so that's going to mess up, <laughs> or could mess up your, what's hanging onto those exchange sites. And let me just For the sake of argument, or the sake of discussion, so again, you have positively charged cat ions in the soil that hang on to the negative sites that are on a soil particle, and they're not all equal. Aluminum is much stronger than potassium is. You know, it, it's a it's a bigger ion; it has a higher positive charge. So again, think of like a magnet or a battery—you know, something that has a very strong positive charge is going to hold on very tightly to the negative particle, the charges on the soil particles. So if you have a lot of soluble aluminum in your soil, it's going to outcompete these ions that your plants want, um, and that is a major basis for why if the soil pH drops too low that you have poor nutrient holding capacity in your soils because there's a lot of aluminum in our soils, but it's not soluble, it's insoluble. As the soil pH drops below five, aluminum becomes very soluble and then it buggers everything up. That's like in a nutshell, that's it. So somebody says, why do I adjust soil pH? I'm like, because our soils are naturally below five because it's a shale stone based parent material. You gotta apply lime, you gotta get it at least above 5,2 so that aluminum becomes insoluble again. And now your cation exchange sites can be occupied by the nutrients that you want. That's like, if you don't do that, <laughs> your vines are small and they're sick and there's nothing I can do about it. No amount of you know fertilizer is gonna help you.
0: Terry, we had one question come in that I think you probably addressed, but you could address it more directly with that last Mm -hmm. slide. Um, So the grower mentioned that they were happy with their pH, but still had a need for calcium. And I guess I mentioned to them last year that you can use gypsum to fix that, but be careful. Um, So you've got calcium listed as a good guy, but you could probably say the same
2: thing about, if you could comment on that, I guess. Yes, okay, and I will. I'll let you answer. Good slide, here we go. You just walked me into my next slide. <laughs> uh, okay, so as you raise your soil pH, so the the, the bottom axis here is soil pH. And this top uh, graph is the, the available calcium. And the bottom graph has magnesium and potassium. So magnesium are the gray dots and potassium are the blue. So as you raise soil pH of course you're getting rid of aluminum as a problem and you have your your actually your cation exchange capacity of your soil will increase with with increasing soil ph and you get more calcium and more magnesium that hang on to those exchange sites and they and they outcompete potassium right so you raise soil ph aluminum's gone so that gives room for calcium and magnesium to move in, and they do, and potassium struggles. So that's kind of, kind of, if you understand that, you understand your, how to deal with your nutrition of calcium, magnesium, and potassium. So, and, I, and this is saying the same thing. Soil pH goes up, aluminum has gone, calcium goes way up, magnesium starts to go up. So look, look at the numbers here. You're talking about, you know, 2000 PPM of calcium and you know at a ph of five and magnesium is like 250 and so is potassium um as you increase that total ph i like the window between five five and six five so you have plenty of calcium you have plenty of magnesium but now you're starting to worry about potassium in if we have young small concord vines with a relatively small crop Uh, that's fine. Like the ratio between calcium and magnesium and potassium at 5.5 to 6.5 is fine. And you shouldn't have to worry about it too much. The problem is when we grow Concord, big vines, 8 to 10 tons per acre, that crop requires a lot of potassium. So especially Concord (laughs) is a big sink for potassium. So what happens in the 5.5 to 6.5, you got calcium, and magnesium, and now the plants struggle to get enough potassium to satisfy that big crop. And that's when we want to apply potassium fertilizer to help supplement that. Um, okay, here's a this year example. <laughs> so we did a soil sample around the farm at Clairo. Here are all the different blocks we have at Clairo. There's different varieties. You know, We have vinifera, labrusca, we have um, hybrids. We have a high color program for, for um, candidate or uh, it's Gallo now. Um, so we have different varieties. And so we, we do an around the farm soil sampling and it's this, the same graph, right? So think about this graph right down here of magnesium and potassium, because these are the, the two that really compete with each other. Does calcium compete with these two? yes and no it the let's see how do I explain this the right way (laughs) the plant confuses these two because they're both positively charged and the hydrated radius of those ions are about the same so when the plant sees magnesium and potassium it gets confused between those two so it's not just about the supply of them in the soil it's about how the plants take them up Calcium looks very different to the plant because it's a bigger, has a larger hydrated radius um, and it has a stronger positive charge. So the plant actually does a good job separating out, hey, this is calcium, but doesn't do a very good job saying, "Uh, here's the difference between magnesium and potassium. So when you load one up, like if you load up a lot of magnesium, you hurt the potassium. If you load up a lot of potassium, you hurt the magnesium. And we use that to our benefit. So when I go around the farm and we do a soils test and we look at calcium, magnesium, potassium and phosphorus in those soils, and I plot those out against soil pH. So same thing happens. So pH increases, my calcium goes up, my phosphorus goes up because it's an aluminum interaction. Again, you're taking aluminum out of the picture and more phosphorus is available. And then you get this crisscross of magnesium and potassium that are competing with each other. So I just, I just pull those two out. And it's the same, ends up being the same chart as the one here on the bottom, right? Potassium doesn't change. Magnesium does change as soil pH goes up. At low soil pH, I'm just saying, meh, all the cations are crapping out because of aluminum. So raise the soil pH and then you'll deal with it later. when my soil pH is, in this case, between 6.1 and 6.5, so between 5.5 5 and 6.5, I'm getting a pretty good one-to-one balance between magnesium and potassium. And so I really don't need to do anything special, just maintenance doses of NPK. Um, just to, especially if I have a large crop, I want to give it a little extra, a little maintenance dose of potassium, make sure I can support that crop. When the soil pH gets much higher and we get a lot of magnesium and that really outcompetes the potassium, and I'm growing a big crop, that's when I need those extra doses of potassium fertilizer. So I look at a chart like this and I talk to Dan Sprague, who manages the blocks, and he says, Well, what do you want me to do for a fertilizer? I just look at that chart and I say, Well, in these blocks, give me lime. And in these blocks over here, I want extra potassium. And my actually my really my highest producing best blocks. I'm like, just give them some maintenance doses of those fertilizers to make
3: sure we can keep up. And it's Ter- to Ter- me, it's you, that simple. Um, clarify. So when you say high uh, in the Concords, you mean like 8 to 10 tons to the acre, right? Is that about right? High crop, uh, need, needing um, potassium, Um Yes. OK, well, yeah, so I just it's a to...
2: it's a linear it's a linear response. The higher the crop, the more the potassium need is. So, you know, six tons per acre needs more than four, you know, and eight needs more than six.
3: Right. What, but I just wanted to sort of clarify for some guys when you say maintenance rate, what what amounts are you talking about for maintenance?
2: Uh, so for me, a maintenance rate of potassium is 200 pounds of potash. So, before you quote me, the best thing is to do is to look at the, the Tony's book, the Wine Grape Production for Eastern North America, and look in the, the table on the back for potassium because we do these if-then statements, you know, if your soil pH is this and your crop is big or your crop is low, you know, add this much in it. And we talk about what, what's a maintenance dose and what is a um, supplemental dose or an extra dose. Okay.
1: I'm looking at it right now. Do you want me to give the numbers anything?
2: So maintenance, if I remember right, a maintenance dose is 200 pounds of potash, which is like a little less than hundred pounds of potassium.
1: Yep. It says apply. Well, it says apply up to 150 pounds um, K2O.
2: And then an moderate
1: dose. is up to 400 pounds and heavy is up to 600
2: pounds yeah
1: and i put them all in I i don't think like i've
2: that. ever had to apply a heavy dose i don't yeah. think we've ever gone above 400
3: pounds of muriate of potash and then again to clarify for you know some guys it, the maintenance dose is just so that because the crop takes so much potash, uses so much that you have to replace it for these heavy crops. Right, is that, is that? Yes. Okay. Yes.
2: So there's, uh, I always talk about supply, uptake and demand. So your supply issues have to do with cation exchange capacity and soil pH. (laughs) Um, uh, Uptake has to do with the competition between potassium and magnesium. And then demand has to do with your crop size. And you kind of need to match those. So again, get your soil pH in the right range, and then look at your potassium magnesium balance and and adjust your fertilizer as necessary. And then uh, the other part of your decision is how big your crop is. Like I just talked to Dan yesterday about this. It's, you know, it looks like we've set, we're setting a big crop, And we're like, we better give them an extra shot of potassium to, especially on our soils, which are dry. Um, Potassium, (laughs) another wrinkle. Potassium is, doesn't move well in dry soils, essentially. So if your soil dries out and you have a high potassium demand, you better have your vines pumped up with potassium
3: so they can get over that. Uh, And and again, if guys, hopefully they will be doing their crop estimation. So if they come up with, you know, a pretty high crop load, then should they be putting on that extra uh, potassium now so that it's available or or what? Yes. And I would, yes, again, so the, the
2: one, the one thing I would be a little concerned about is, you know, put on your, put on that fertilizer, like when you know there's rain in the forecast, And I know at this time of the year, that's, that can be tricky. Um, You know, once you put on that potassium and it rains and it gets into the soil, then it can be taken up by the vines. We have good canopy size. So transpiration streams going and it'll get taken up into the vine and you can have those vines pumped up so that when verasion hits and that's when, at verasion is when all the potassium starts going into the fruit. So you want to have the vines pumped up with that potassium by verasion, so that it can it can withstand that verasion to harvest period. Because what happens if you don't do that? <laughs> so this shoot at the bottom is showing potassium deficiency, and you see how the the it's the base leaves of that shoot. So potassium is very mobile in the plant, and what needs the potassium? The growing shoot tip. And from verasion to harvest, that shouldn't be a big deal. And the fruit needs it. Those are the two sinks for potassium. And so if it's not getting it from the soil and the plant isn't kind of pumped up with potassium, it takes it from those leaves. And so the potassium goes from the leaves down to the shoot tip and it goes from the leaves into the developing fruit. And, it, and now, <laughs> because these leaves are now black, they're not doing photosynthesis anymore. So now you're, you're having trouble ripening your fruit. And we really see when you when you have potassium deficiency like that, you're seeing black leaf in your vineyard, you take a huge hit to vine size for the next year. I mean you there's nothing faster that'll take a three pound vine down to a half a pound vine than potassium deficiency.
3: So that's another good reason to do crop estimation. So you know if you have a really heavy crop, you can get that potassium on now. So that's yes. available by okay.
1: Thank you, Andy. That's just what I was going to say.
3: Yep.
2: Um, And another way to monitor that is through your tissue sampling. So we've talked a lot already about soil sampling and what your soil tests are telling you. Um, So when you get into these issues of supply uptake and demand, a lot of times you get a disconnect of, oh, my soil is telling me this and I should be fine, but my tissue samples especially with grapes because they're a perennial crop and you know shallow rooted you can get this kind of disconnect so another way to monitor what's going on is do tissue samples because then you know exactly what's getting into the vine Um, and we again Nelson Chalice did a lot of work with potassium we've done work with soil pH and potassium magnesium imbalance and so we know when we take petiole samples for potassium at bloom, we wanna be above 2% in our potassium. So the, the red line would be uh, sufficient potassium vines and blue line would be deficient potassium vines. And this deficient stuff is you know anything that's below 2%. So you wanna have 2% or above at bloom and you wanna have above 1% or around 1% or above at verasion time in your petiole samples. And if you don't, you should be on a (laughs) potassium fertilizer maintenance program or looking at your soil pH or um, doing everything we've already talked about. Uh, There's a, I think I do talk about it. So we're we're actually moving into the world of spatial data and, and trying to develop sensors to give us uh, spatial nutrient um, content of the vines so that we can variable rate, apply fertilizer on top of that. Uh, and one of the things we're working on is we always take petioles. <laughs> there's some work that has come out of Oregon that says that leaf tissue is better. And there's, duh there's a big controversy going on right now do we take leaves do we take petioles do we take leaf discs what do we know what i know is that we have we take petioles it's a standard tissue to take so at bloom we take petioles opposite the medial cluster so we're taking a standard tissue at a standard time and we have standard values same thing at verasion you're taking the the petioles off of the most recently mature leaf. So you're taking a standard tissue at a standard time. And so we have standard values. (laughs) All of that is kind of coming into question now because there's some research that suggests that leaves blades, especially for nitrogen may be better than potassium. I haven't seen any clear evidence yet that would make me want to change. Um, But we're working on that and I will Yes, let me talk about this just for a second. If I still have time, am I good, Jen?
1: Yeah, you're good with time. I'm sorry, I'm answering questions in the chat box at the same time.
2: (laughs) Okay, all right, so, so mm, along the same lines as all the other precision, viticulture, spatial data management stuff that we're doing is, we know all this research stuff already. We know about pruning level and crop load and, and uh, ripening profiles and how to manage that stuff through like vineyard mechanization and shoot thinning and fruit thinning. You know, similarly with nutrition, we know all this stuff about nitrogen and nitrogen recommendations, um, soil pH, calcium magnesium balance, you know, all of these research-based knowledge leading to recommendations that give us you know um a way to manage our vineyards to have high producing concord and all of the spatial data management stuff is let's just take all of that information we know and be able to apply it spatially so like we're not coming up with really new information it's more about how do we evaluate the spatial distribution in the field and respond to it Uh, and that's what, you know, a lot of the efficient vineyard stuff is about. We've moved on to a new project led by Marcus Keller at Washington State University called Precision or High High Resolution Vineyard Nutrient Management. The goals of that project are to, to A, develop a sensor like a potassium sensor that you could send, a, send the sensor through your vineyard or you fly it over your vineyard with a drone. And it gives you a spatial map of your Potassium level that's in the plant. So you don't have to go and take tissue samples anymore, unless you just want to validate your spatial data. But you could just look at that map and say, I have high potassium over here, low potassium over here. I'm going to adjust my fertilizer based on this map, and I'm going to use a variable rate fertilizer spreader and do that. So the first part of that is to actually build the sensor, (laughs) which I'm not an engineer, but I got to work with engineers to do this. So we've set up a block at Um, that has a low nitrogen block, a low potassium block, and a low magnesium block, which is really turning out to be a low pH block that has like magnesium and phosphorus deficiency based on all the information I've already told you about. So easy with the low nitrogen block, we just stopped applying nitrogen and we added, and we don't kill off the row centers so that the cover crop essentially is sucking up all that nitrogen and it can't make it to the vine. So we're creating vines of low nitrogen. We're creating vines of low potassium. So based on what I've already told you, if I wanted to actually create low potassium vines, I raise the soil pH, and then I could probably add magnesium on top of that. Although we didn't need to do that. We just increased the, the lime rate, raise the soil pH, and the, the magnesium is out competing potassium, and we're getting potassium deficiency in those vines. And this was all like within a year. I thought it would take a little bit longer to have these deficiencies turn up, but they're coming up pretty quick. Same thing with low magnesium. The idea is we drop the soil pH, aluminum becomes available, it decreases cations that can be hung on by the soil, and that's going to create magnesium and and phosphorus deficiency. And it does. Um, So these pictures are... So we did this last spring and by fall, we had uh, tissue nutrient deficiencies already in those vines. We collect, um, so at a pretty high spatial resolution. So any of the vine, any of these, this is the vineyard block and any of the ones with the square are individual vines. So we collect tissue, both leaf and petiole at both bloom and verasion uh, and have them analyze. So we're answering a couple questions, like, uh, you know, what's the difference between petiole and leaf values? How do they change with these different nutrient deficiencies we have? And how do we take advantage of some of the natural variation in the soil to to look at the sensor response? So you can see from this map, so the healthy check we had they're all the vines are healthy because we're really good at plant nutrition (laughs) management like you should be and those vines are big and healthy and we have anywhere from three to five pounds of pruning weight in those in that healthy check block and then the other ones you can see how we have different deficiencies at different levels so that kind of gives you a spatial map of we're creating a variation in the deficiency and now this drone um, you see in the picture, the engineers from RIT are sending those drones up, fly them over the vineyard, and they have all that they have about a hundred thousand dollars of different um, hyperspectral imagery equipment on there that are essentially scanning the vines at thousands of different wavelengths, and they're looking for ones, say, like with potassium. If I say, oh. You know, we sample all these vines. Here are different levels of potassium deficiency and they can match it up with what they scan with what, what our tissue samples are saying so that we can identify particular wavelengths that will tell us, oh, if I scan the vineyard with just these, I scan a thousand different wavelengths, I have two wavelengths I can use to make a cheap, easy sensor that I can drive to the vineyard and now I can get a potassium map of my vineyard and I can base my variable rate fertilizer on that. So it's a lot of sampling, a lot of science-y stuff to come up with a sensor that would be usable uh, for growers. Uh, The next part of that, so that part is all about helping the engineers develop the sensor. And then the second part would be, how do we actually use that in the vineyard? So this is a six acre concord block, the railroad block. We use it for a lot of our other sensing stuff that's going on. And so our spatial data pipeline um, is we collect data, we process the data, we come up with these zonal maps, and then we sample within the zones to validate the map. And in this case, I made a map. I said, "Mm, what's gonna influence the nutrients in my vineyard? So I used the soils map that we had. I used last year's crop load map because that'll tell me how much stress was on the vine. And I used um, this year's Bloom NDVI map. I put those three together in what we call a cluster analysis, and it gave me that map. So to me, that is telling me my nutrition is most likely going to be different in those zones based on the, the input layers that I had. And I'm validating those by stratifying samples. So there's a blue zone, and I have so many samples in the blue zone. There's a green zone. I have so many samples of the green, so many. So I'm, I'm getting more detail um, at the way I sample my vineyard to give me a, you know, what's going on nutritionally in that vineyard. And, I, and, it, and if I get the, a nice relationship between the zones and what my samples say, then I'll use that information to variable rate, uh, fertilize that vineyard to, to get the nutrient balance which is what we're after. And that's, that's all the slides I have.
1: I'm gonna, <laughs> well, wow, I gonna interrupt you right now anyways, just let everybody know that next week during our coffee pot meeting, we have Nick Gunner and Terry talking about the MyEV tool and how it can be useful in your blocks, so.
2: Yeah, if you want me to keep going, I can give you a preview of that or if we're out of time or.
1: Um, we do need to talk about disease management. So we should probably answer questions. We should probably stop there and answer questions because we're gonna cover this next week anyway. So
3: yeah,
1: does anybody have any questions for Terry?
0: So we had a couple grower questions and I'm gonna take those and let Dr. Bates answer them. Uh, first up, so you mentioned that water is the best fertilizer and we don't irrigate in this region but we do control water partly by increasing organic matter and by killing the natural weed cover or competition what period of time is most critical for killing weed cover for the benefit of the vines
2: yes so the the work that was done with by bob pool and alan laxo uh, their bottom line was from about two weeks pre-bloom to four weeks post-bloom. And if you think about it, that's when the canopy is actively growing and we're setting fruit and the vines need water. So it's at that time of the year is when the vines need the water and we should kill the competition.
0: So you're saying two weeks pre-bloom, four weeks post-bloom, that's a six week period? Uh, some growers are experiencing about 30 days worth of, of weed control from Round Roundup or Glufosinate. Uh, would putting on two applications to kill all of the weeds in the row centers for a six to eight week period be recommended? Are you seeing better success with other strategies or different strategies? Is that what you're seeing at claro? uh, We We are accustomed to doing one uh, Roundup application and getting that uh, six weeks of control. But as we see Roundup start to slip, um, we certainly need to do more. But w- what is it that we can do to to get that six weeks of control?
2: The approach that we've taken has been you use Roundup around Bloom, maybe not necessarily two weeks prior Ugh. Depends how dry it is. So watch your weather. So again, typically as we're I'm watching the soil moisture and then the weather forecast and the rain. So as I'm getting into that two-week pre-bloom period, I'm saying, is it dry? Is it wet? You know, how where do we stand with soil moisture? Put on your roundup. That's gonna give me about a month of kill down. If it's dry after that, then I'm gonna go in with a, a burn down chemical to give me an extended weed free time. The other, the other treatment that Bob Poole liked was the, the killed annual ryegrass because you would kill it. It has an allelopathic effect. So it stops other weeds from growing. And that gave you like an extra week and a half or two weeks of weed free time. Typically, we go in with a roundup and then we watch the weather and we may go in with an extra burn down. So but now having. Having said that, the Jen's looking at different treatments. We're looking at some different treatments. Um, if you go past, well, you won't see it now. But if you went past Clarel earlier in the season, uh, in one vineyard, we're growing an Italian ryegrass to try to get a really thick grass. You know, a lot of root mass a lot of biomass production early in the season. And then we're using a a mow and throw. So we have a side discharge mower. And the idea is we wanna try to grow enough biomass in the row center to cut it and throw it up underneath the vines as a mulch. Um, Just again, just different ways of trying to strike the balance between improving soil health or active organic matter with roots in the soil, but then also you know not having water competition during the time of the year that the vines need it and what other strategies do we potentially have out there to do that
0: so i'll i'll repeat very quickly what we discussed last week at length um we discussed glufosinate tank mixed with roundup and whether that would be good or bad and the science on that is fairly young but so the logically we would think that might be bad because the glufosinate would impede the Roundup, but some, um, some weed specialists are finding the opposite effect that it, that it actually makes it more effective and also quite obviously targets different weeds. So, you know, Roundup is doing a good job with your stubborn perennials and the glufosinate's taking care of the mare's tail, which is why a lot of our growers and growers in other industries started tank mixing it, without any scientific research being done on it so they didn't wait they just did it and it does seem to give you more time in the right conditions and the best conditions would be when things are cool so that the so that the glufosinate takes longer to work so that first spray you might get 6 weeks if you have the help of a dead cover crop and a tank mix that was a long discussion last week but but I just that, that's what a lot of growers are doing so you can talk to them about their experiences too as we not just terry but uh lynn uh the weed scientist at cornell does work with that tank mix i think she's going to do it at Claryl if she's got space and time but she's working on other stuff too so
2: so calcium deficiency shows up in it's usually structural so at the cellular level so um, calcium pectate is one of the major proteins that helps hold cell walls together. Be, you know, it's like the cement between the cell walls of plants. And when you start to get pe- or calcium deficiency, you start to see stuff like the shoot tip. The growing shoot tip starts to look um, almost mushy because it's it's falling apart because it doesn't have the calcium okay. cement to hold things together. Calcium is also, uh, it helps cross link membranes of cells. So again, if you have calcium deficiency, you're gonna start to see like abnormalities in the growing area of the shoot tip. Um, You might see stuff like poor set with the, you know, any actively growing part of the vine. So like setting fruit and having the fruit grow, having the shoot grow, those things will start to become abnormal if you have calcium deficiency. And I can tell you, I've never seen it in grapes. I've never seen a true like calcium deficiency in grapes. I've always had the question, we haven't researched it. Um, You know, it's one of those things, if if we think it's a big enough issue, we probably should research it. But in other fruit crops like apples and cherries, they'll put on a calcium spray for fruit firmness. We don't do that with grapes. And I don't, it might just be that we haven't really, we don't we don't deal with fruit cracking very much. I mean, there definitely has been some incidences right around harvest if we get a lot of rain that you can have some fruit cracking, but it's not like a widespread problem. Having high levels of calcium or putting on a calcium spray could potentially prevent that from happening. Um, but we just have never, I I think I bring up this issue every year and then we don't really study it. Terry,
0: one of the things that we've been seeing, well, I guess there's two reasons, but there's growers getting information about nutrients, um, which is probably not great, but soil health, which probably isn't so bad from field crop uh, resources. Um, And one of the reasons there's been a, a transition towards applying more gypsum, getting back to that calcium discussion, is improved soil structure um and sulfur availability which sulfur is very important in corn and they've seen a lot of deficiency in corn so that's where a lot of the interest in gypsum is coming from
2: yeah uh so gypsum is calcium sulfate so i see the sulfur part uh Okay, so let's, let's knock this one off. Let's see, so the first one is about the soil structure. Yep. So gypsum is used typically in high salt soils. So when you got a sodic soil, a, a soil that has a lot of sodium in it, sodium, it, it causes uh, flaking of the soil particles. So you start to lose soil structure. And then if you don't have structure, you don't have good water holding capacity, blah, blah, blah. But usually that happens in very arid climates that are under irrigation. And so you get a salt buildup. And so you add gypsum to get your soil structure back in line. Um, I, Does think high mag- a, I just don't think that's an issue here, but again, I don't, I don't think we've ever done any research on it. Does um, high
0: magnesium ever do that
2: or no? Nope. Okay. No, it's usually a, it's usually associated oh. with sodium. Okay. Then the sulfur part, again, I have, it's very rare that I see low sulfur values in any tissue. But it would be a great source of sulfur fertilizer if you did have low sulfur issues. So I don't know if that helped answer the question. (laughs) It doesn't hurt anything, Um, you know, even in Steve's question: Gypsum would be a nice source of calcium for his low calcium soils. Doesn't do anything to change soil pH. Doesn't have any carbonate in it or anything.
0: I think in Steve's case, I mean, I think I'd like to see the whole. And Jen could might want to actually see it. I don't. I don't need to see it. Jen can see it. But my thought would be um, is make sure that the the aluminum is not um, low. And if magnesium is normal or low, you can just raise pH more.
2: And And that would raise your calcium too.
0: Right. And then you don't have to drive to Michigan to get gypsum. We had fairly ideal growing conditions during bloom, which appear to be producing a reasonable set. The vines are growing at a fantastic rate. Um, excessive growth during bloom can reduce set as, as we were talking about uh, at the same time, are there other factors affecting set such as temperatures being too low or too high drought conditions uh, or other factors that might have a, a bigger effect on set than growth?
2: There are multiple factors that all affect set. Um, it, yeah, we talked about the competition between the growing shoe tip and the setting fruit. And, and I, yes, I agree. I don't, really see that as a major issue in our area. So again, the from the work that we've done on vine excavation f- up until about bloom, the vines, a, a major source for carbohydrate for the vines is in the stored starch that's in the perennial structures. So you know you build up your vines, there's starch stored like a potato. There's starch stored in the root system and the perennial structures it's using that as an energy source from bud break and it dropped, you see it drop off until about bloom. And then about bloom, you're getting a nice canopy development, more photosynthesis, and now the carbohydrates can start, you know, the, the canopy can start being the carbohydrate source for energy for the plant. So I think if you have, you know, good healthy vines. Like last year, our crop was a little low. We had a good growing season. So your vine size or your vine capacity should be up. And that what that really means is that your vine vine carbohydrate reserves should be up. So you get a year like this one, you're probably still working off of carbohydrate reserves during the bloom. So you can support shoot growth and you can support set. That's awesome. Um, But your comment is about environmental factors. And I agree if the temperature is below, I think it is 60 or above 90, which usually doesn't happen during bloom (laughs) or in this region at all. Um, Yes, you can affect, there are temperature effects on those things. And usually that's uh, the temperature is affecting the rate at which the proteins work. Um, I think a bigger issue with set is um, the amount of liquid water that is on the vines during, the the um pollination process so you know the pollen hits the female part of the flower and then the pollen tube has to grow down and that's a single cell that's growing down and what happens if we get like cold temperatures and it's rainy um you know high about like a whatever the dew point you have a lot of water on the leaves or on the flower parts, that you'll burst those pollen tubes and then they don't end up pollinating the flower and then you don't have a good set. So that's why I think when we have cool, cloudy, crappy, wet conditions, we have poor set. And that's really not about shoot growth. It's about, I think that physical action of the water on the the single cell pollen tubes that
3: are growing in the flower. Okay, Tara, with that, there might have been some, you know, it popped into my head the questions that growers always have is like, "Oh, I can't spray during during bloom because you know it's going to affect set." Um, clarify, you know, that versus you know amount of rain you'd get. I mean, there's a difference, but a lot of growers have said that. Uh, in the past you shouldn't be spraying yeah
2: the old timers say that you shouldn't be in the vineyard at all during bloom and i don't (laughs) um
1: it's usually also not rainy and gloomy when they're out during that time if they're spraying during bloom it's usually a nice day right
2: yes and according to Martin Goffinet, a lot of pollination, so Concord grapes tend to be self-pollinated. They can be cross-pollinated, but a lot of the flowers are self-pollinated in that the pollen will dehisce from the anthers actually before the caps come off. And so then you have those pollen tubes growing down and fertilizing, and then the caps fall off and then you can actually get cross-pollination at that point. So you know, so a lot of times by the time we call 50% bloom, a lot of the pollination has already happened. Um I don't I like I consider a, a wet, cold, rainy night really bad compared to someone going out in spring,
3: which well, is and spraying. I, I which water you hits know, the, and then it
2: evaporates. You know, the
3: amount of water. I mean, you know, you're not the amount of water you're going to get on those during bloom from a sprayer is nothing compared to, yeah. you know, what you're going to get from. You a get rain. an inch
2: of rain. An acre inch of rain is six million gallons of water. How many people spray six million gallons of water on their <laughs> vines? Seriously, you're you're spraying you're spraying a hundred gallons per acre. Maybe if you're listening to Andy. <laughs> uh, You know, 100 gallons of water per acre is nothing compared to 6 million gallons of water per acre if you get an inch of rain. So yeah, there's, yes, you're talking about significant difference in the amount of water. And again, it's, there are environmental conditions, how much water there is, what's the temperature, what's the dew point, how long is that water sitting on the plants, how much of that water is sitting on the, the flower clusters, Yeah, Stan Howell used to talk about, was it a hypertonic or hypotonic solution? (laughs) So a solution of water that has more or less salt on it will cause those cells to burst. Again, back to our hot dog theory. If you uh, you have a bunch of water against a cell and and then the cell has more solutes in it, the water gets driven into that cell and then the cell explodes.
0: So this grower had a question don't you want to improve your soil structure so that when we get a large downpour of rain, it will go all go into the ground instead of running off of it. Are there other reasons to improve soil structure or, or is this the primary goal? Thanks.
2: Yes, I totally agree with that. Yes. I think, you know, our general recommendations for years and years and years, and again, the roundup at bloom and then maybe a, an extra burn down if, if we need it, you know, uh, the, the old school of thought has been, you know, nucum till they glow. And so that all the water that's falling from the sky is available to the, to the vines. And I think that's a good concept, but I think we've done it for so long that a lot of our soils are the, the structure has been, is gone downhill. There's crusting. So the water, when it hits the soil runs off, it doesn't infiltrate and then it doesn't stay there. So again, I think that's why we're, you know, we're actually following your lead um, and looking at all these other treatments in the vineyard, like, you know, how do we have the best cover crop situation so that stuff like cool season grasses and cool season other plant species that we can have those as good covers throughout the, you know, when the vines don't need a lot of water, you know, have that there improve our soil structure improve organic matter improve you know water holding capacity throughout i mean it's only there's there's only like two months where you are like hey the vines need the water let's get rid of the competition there's 10 more months out of the year where we probably need to have stuff there improving our soil structure and helping ourselves out during that two months and yeah, I don't, I think we've we're deficient in that area of research and we need to address it. And I see Jen smirking because she's like, yes. That's I, <laughs> I was work. gonna say
1: enter Jen.
2: Was... You're welcome.
1: Thank you.
2: <laughs> I think what we do is really good. I think we can be better, as I think is what I think the recommend our base recommendation is good. And I think we could just be better. Um,
1: Just better for everybody.
2: Yes. I I think it's, I guess I would make the same now since we're talking about nutrition. I think that same thing is true about nutrition. I think we know enough. I think our base recommendations are really good. It does sustain if if you can get your vine size up and maintain eight to ten ton per acre crop. I think our nutrient recommendations are there to help us do that. You know, can we be better? Um, can we do it variable rate? Um, are there again the conversation I had with Dan Sprague about the nutrition at the lab? Is yep, everything looks pretty good. Now we're tweaking things and we're making sure that we can sustain those big crops. So I think we're good and we can be better. And now we're at that point where we're just tweaking stuff.
0: Thank you again for joining us. This was a special episode of Between the Vines. I want to thank Dr. Bates for joining us as well. If you have questions for him or for any of the Lake Erie Regional Grape Program team, please feel free to reach out. And obviously, of course, don't forget to join us next week or sooner for a our regular episode. And also, we're going to continue to pr- bring you these coffee pots through the growing season. We've heard from growers. We know you guys want content. We, uh, we can only make so much content. And this is a, a really valuable source, I think, uh, of, you know, as we get these guest speakers, especially bringing research directly to you, both current and past. So hopefully you found that valuable. And if it did stimulate some questions, join us again. You can also join us live for these coffee pots on Wednesday. You check that out on our website to register for for continuing pesticide credits uh, if that's something you're interested in. Otherwise, we will see you next week.